Jared, welcome to the podcast. If you could just start off by telling us a little bit about your company, Zero Gravity. Sure. So it almost goes back 26 years, actually, which is I started Zero Gravity to solve my own problem. Back in the day, I grew up in a small town in West Yorkshire called Morley, which is between Leeds and Wakefield. I'm a single parent family. My mum's a speech therapist in the NHS. I made a journey through state schools to Oxford University, where I studied PPE, and saw firsthand just how large the barriers are for students like me to access elite institutions. I didn't have a big network of professionals around me who could give me the inside track on how to succeed. There wasn't really a, an education culture in West Yorkshire where I lived, which you know, created an environment where I could be inspired or when you have those you know, waxes and wanes in motivation, you've got someone to pick you up. And um, there are very few people in my school had been to uh, Oxford University before. So I saw the barriers firsthand. And, and when I got to the end of university, I, I sort of noticed that every single facet of society was interested in solving this problem. The uh, government would talk about uh, leveling up and they wanted to spread opportunity to the rest of the country. Um, the corporates would talk about diversity and wanting to uh, create a diverse workforce of socially mobile people. Universities were being regulated on being representative of their local areas and the talent across the country. And yet no one could actually really find a solution. So I wanted zero gravity to be the solution to that problem and you know, create a world where you know, talent matches opportunity. We've got this catchphrase that you know, talent is spread evenly, but opportunity is not. And the mission of Zero Gravity ultimately is to try and change that. Yeah, and I want to touch on something you said there at the beginning, which is that you were like really frustrated by the system. And I've been thinking about this quite a lot recently with you know, the graduate guide and why I'm doing it. And, and I think everyone talks about in entrepreneurship that passion is really important. but I think almost more important than passion, a genuine like annoyance that what the solution you're trying to make doesn't exist. I mean, how has that like driven you that frustration? Yeah, I think there was a frustration. I think a lot of entrepreneurship often comes out having a bit of a chip on your shoulder because if you start a company um, to try and disrupt a sector, you've got to defy the odds in order to succeed. And if you look at the data of the startup successes. The vast majority of startups fail, but even when you get to sort of Series B startups that have raised quite a lot of investment, they're still more likely to fail than succeed. So you have to be a little bit crazy and wacky to you know, create a startup. And, and often that sort of you know, craziness that comes from being really motivated about an issue because it's a problem you faced yourself. And often you've got to have a little bit of a chip on your shoulder. You've got to be a little bit annoyed about the status quo and maybe a bit annoyed about your competitors, and you've got to have skin in the game in solving that problem because you know, being an entrepreneur is a real emotional roller coaster. And when you do have those dark days when stuff goes wrong as it does, you need that kind of fire burning in your belly in order to sort of get up and uh, keep going. And often that comes from a sense of chippiness. And it did for me. You know, I'd faced this problem firsthand and I had skin in the game in solving it. And I was just really annoyed at seeing so many talented people fall through the net. You know, when I I grew up in West Yorkshire. I was surrounded by so many ambitious, talented people who just were failed by a system that didn't support them into those top universities and careers. And when I got to Oxford, I met lots of people from diverse backgrounds. And though some of them were really intelligent, mm -hmm. but a lot of them fundamentally weren't any more talented than the people I grew up with. They just had far more resources. So I had that chippiness and desire to change that. And that sort of certainly got me through the, the dark times on the emotional roller coaster of being an early stage startup founder. 
Yeah, and right now you deal with people, getting people from school into university and also university into a job. I mean, how did that actually, what were the origins of zero gravity? Was it, which way around did you do it? Um, because obviously for me right now, graduating, like I'm around a load of people that are really struggling with that transition into, into jobs. And, but, you know, I think university, A-level to university is actually the biggest step in terms of the education you get access to, the people you're surrounded by, everything. So which one do you prioritise first? Because you obviously can't do it all initially. Sure. I think in terms of the vision of zero gravity, there's a couple of core beliefs that are quite distinctive to our company. I think one is that I've always believed that social mobility as, a, as an issue is an economic issue as much as a social one. So like social mobility is a very academic phrase. And what does that actually mean? It's essentially about untethering that link between background and opportunity. And then making sure that if you're a talented person, you can reach your potential in, in society. And often that's not the case. Now, if you're somebody from a, an affluent background and you're six times more likely to make it to a top university than someone from a low income background, like the disparities are, are huge. And, um, and that's not just a, a social problem. That's not just about social injustice, you know, not living in a, an equal society of a level playing field. It's a massive economic issue as well, because when you think about it, you know, societies live and die on their ability to utilize talent. And, and currently we're only utilizing a very small part of the talent in this country. You no know, people are living in affluent areas, often in London and the Southeast, going to a small subset of schools, a small subset of universities. And there's a whole group of people outside that system who, who currently though, probably aren't in jobs or sectors where their talents can best be utilized. And, and that has a massive effect. If we could just get social mobility in the UK to the same level as some of our Western European counterparts, we can increase GDP by 39 billion pounds a year. That's enough to give every household a thousand pounds. So social mobility is an economic issue as much as a social one. And, and that's why I started Zero Gravity, because I thought that all these big institutions and societies, whether they're government, employees, universities, have a financial interest in solving this problem. And if we can create a platform that makes that work, we can also then monetize this as well and create a self-sustaining business model. And this can be a business rather than a charity, which has been the traditional model to tackle this social issue. And that links into the second core belief, which is this idea about the power of compounding. Like, I'm sure you've seen it yourself but but often to achieve a massive goal you can't do that overnight there's no one thing silver bullet you can do to achieve a massive goal it's all about getting five percent better every single day over a long enough period of time and you get that compounding effect or a domino effect or whatever you want to call it where if you do you get five percent better every day in a year's time then you can achieve something that would have seen extraordinary only 12 months ago and I think that principle applies to getting into top universities. I think it applies to getting into top careers. But the traditional model in the kind of higher education and career sector in terms of helping students has been like one-off interventions. They're put on a summer school or they do a talk in a classroom or um, create a seminar series for students to go to. But one-off interventions don't lead to exponential outcomes. What leads to exponential outcomes is that getting 5% better every day. So I wanted Zero Gravity to be that kind of anytime, anywhere platform that students would have access to on a daily basis. They're in their pocket, they can connect with a mentor, connect with great content and a community. And it was the, the, the app in your pocket that would allow you to get better 5% every day. And that is what unlocks those transformational outcomes. And for me, it makes social mobility a reality. So those were the two defining beliefs behind the business. 
and how we differentiate ourselves in a sector which would traditionally be dominated by you know, small and medium-sized charities. Yeah, on the actual practicalities of achieving that improvement of social mobility, like one thing I found fascinating is you know, how you manage to get names like HSBC and big corporate companies actually linked to your company. And I mean, with HSBC and those other companies, I was wondering, did they approach you because of the work you were doing, or do you think they were the necessary the necessary next step was to get people like that on board? I think. Building a startup with a B2B business model, which is what we have at Zero Gravity, is really tough because the vast majority of institutions are risk averse at heart, especially big ones. And if you build something that's valuable, then you want to protect it and not lose it. And ultimately, people who work in those institutions often don't have an interest in taking big risks to further their careers. So if you're a B2B startup trying to find your first customers, that can be really, really tough because who wants to take a risk on an unknown, unproven entity with no credibility that might not exist in 18 months' time. So it, it took a bit of time to know, find our first you know, clients. Now in the first uh, 18 months of Zero Gravity's um, existence, so we didn't really make uh, very much money, in all honesty. It was, it was really difficult to survive as a startup. And in terms of sort of the acquiring the first clients and getting them on board, our, our first two flagship businesses we worked with were the HSBC and KPMG. I think what stood out about them is they both had a genuine uh, commitment to solving this problem. Uh, KPMG were the first a big UK employer to put an explicit target on um, having working class people in their workforce. HSBC that put diversity at the core of their uh, graduate recruitment strategy. And, and often uh, these businesses had tried stuff before, it hadn't quite worked, it'd been expensive and wanted to sort of try a different approach. And I was just lucky that I was connected in with people in those business businesses who had a slightly higher risk tolerance and were willing to take a risk on an innovative startup doing things in a different way. And from that, you then get that compounding effect which I spoke about before, which is you know, getting those two big names on board, getting results, proving your credibility, then opens up the door to everything else, but it takes time to acquire initial clients. Now, one of my favorite quotes um, is, now you're probably too young to uh, remember the Stone Roses, uh, Peter. I'm not, I'm not sure if people still listen to them <laughs> at, at university. They were sort of my dad's generation of a, a band and they sort of did a comeback when I was at university, but I'm not sure people listen to them now. But there's a famous interview with the lead singer, Ian Brown, where he says, it takes time for people to fall in love with you, but it's inevitable. If, if you've got a, if you've got the vision and the disruptive way of doing things, you will get there. But you have to remember that things that happen overnight. And I think often people going into business for the first time who've seen the kind of zero to hero stories and they've watched the Wolf of Wall Street or they've watched the social network, they expect things to happen overnight. Actually, the reality of most businesses, especially B two B ones, is is struggling for the first eighteen months and then having your breakthrough moment. Yeah, let's talk a bit more about those early stages then, because obviously when you were at school, you would have been working really hard with this idea of getting to Oxford and really improving your, your career hopes and trying to aim for the biggest companies probably. Like that was probably your idea of success at the time. And, and then you get to the end of your time at Oxford and yeah, with the first in Oxford, you could almost go into anywhere. And you decided yourself that you, know, you want to go into the startup world straight off the bat. You had this idea, you had something you were passionate about. And you know, all your peers, they would have been going off to earn this wage and, you know, living in London, having this lifestyle. 
And obviously you're doing something for more than just the money. Um, now, you know, you've got, I think there's 14 um, awards list, listed on your on your LinkedIn, Forbes 30 on the 30. And these are like things that everyone in your cohort would have aspired to get. I mean, how do you reflect on that, that, that first year or this first that first step to actually decide, no, listen, I'm going to do my own thing here and really try and give it a go? Yeah, I, I just want to first like correct something you said, which is, you, know, you mentioned that I got a first my degree at Oxford University, that all those opportunities were open to me. That's what I actually thought when I was at university, but it's not true in reality, which is that if you go to a highly selective university and you complete your degree, that does create a certain flaw underneath you that you can't fall below. You're always going to have access to some kind of fairly well-paying employment. In terms of really getting those top, top graduate jobs that everyone wants, just getting a really good degree isn't going to get you there. And that that isn't necessarily commonsensical because I think a lot of people like me who come from state schools, small towns in the UK, thought that was the way the system worked. You got your degree and then you think about getting a job. But I actually realised quite quickly that even having a first class degree from Oxford doesn't open doors unless you've got the internships and work experience to back it up. And most big graduate employers now are pipelining talent all the way from the first year of university. So if you don't get that spring week in first year, it's almost impossible to get access to a graduate job. And that's a big change in the system, which has happened over the past 10 years. Now, our, our parents didn't face a system that looked anything like that. But that link now between work experience and getting access to employment is super strong. So having a degree, it can create that, you know, that barrier that you don't fall below, but isn't going to allow you to get the top opportunities. In terms of what that looked like for me, that I'd, I jumped on the internship bandwagon quite late. All my friends in second year have got these internships. And I started to panic. I thought, actually, I need to get one of these as well. Didn't know how the system worked. And I just decided almost on a whim to apply for some legal internships. And I got a, a, a summer a vacation scheme at Slaughter in May at the Magic Circle Law Firm uh, without really knowing anything about the firm in, in all honesty. I had one of those, sounds quite cliche, but embarrassing interviews where I got asked about the Magic Circle. Didn't know what that phrase meant and presumed it was something to do with with magic and, and that's a cliche in the industry but that did actually really happen yeah. to me in the interview which, which just shows how underprepared um i was and um I, I got a training contract offer at the end of that which you know, was life-changing in terms of the amount of money being offered but i ended up turning it down because i, I knew i wanted to be a entrepreneur and uh, even though my sort of friends and family thought i was a little bit crazy for turning down a stable career potentially with a very steep earnings trajectory, I had that passion for solving this social issue. So it wasn't actually a difficult decision for me. But that being said, now having to move back home after graduating from university, whilst all my friends went to school, do their grad jobs in London and sort of moved into their own houses and started doing cool things. But that was quite difficult because I became quite socially dislocated from my friends. And it was only when I moved down to London that I was able to solve that problem. Uh, but the first couple of months of starting Zero Gravity, when I had to move back to Yorkshire, there were, were tough. And it's, it's always a difficult decision in the UK to start a business because I don't think the culture in this country is very friendly mm. to entrepreneurship. Everyone celebrates entrepreneurs once they, they get some degree of success or credibility. You, know, you mentioned like Forbes 30 and the 30 awards. Now, everyone celebrates that decision I took now. Yeah. But when I made it at the time, people thought I was nuts. 
the people thought what I was doing wasn't going to succeed. And in some degree, you know, who can blame them? You know, the stats, yeah. they tell a story, right? And most people don't succeed, but I had that passion. I had that chip on the shoulder. I thought, why not give it a go? Yeah, I can massively relate to this. And it sort of has brought up a question that I've been thinking about a lot recently, which is, you know, with these consulting and law and banking jobs, like, it's already so competitive to even, you know, the people that do know about it and have got all that bad, bad market know, you get to see people applying to fifth places from UCL, whatever, like top unis, top experience and still not getting those jobs. But then there's also this group of people that don't even know about it. Like, I, I didn't know about it in first or second year. I was too busy having fun, enjoying myself, like getting over COVID, like seeing people again. And then all of a sudden you're just, you're behind. And you know, it's just made me think, where, where are the jobs? Like, where, where, where do you even find them? How do you start early and like even exploring different career paths? Like, obviously, one thing you do with Zero Gravity is mentorship. And, and I've really benefited from mentorship myself. Almost every single person I've interviewed has been de facto mentor. And I think that really is you know, the way to succeed. Somebody giving you that opportunity, you know, you can have the connections, you can have the resources that you want, but it ultimately does come down to a company or a person giving you a chance. So, what are your opinions on that? Because I, I, as a student who's just been through it, and you know, I, I'm doing this podcast, I'm doing a company, but that's kind of only because, like you, I didn't, you know, I missed that bandwagon completely. Yeah, it's pretty difficult being a student nowadays because the um, the kind of university culture that our parents enjoyed of kind of you know, doing a bit of work whilst getting pissed quite a lot has kind of gone away. You know, you have to nowadays it's difficult to afford university, and you've got to. You know, the default's probably to do 20 hours a week at a part-time job to make ends meet. And then you've got to get all these you know, work experiences as well. And, and, and as you said, I think the one thing people often don't understand is that work experience is far more competitive than getting a place at, at university. But when you look at the success rates to get into most universities, the most competitive universities at Oxford, Imperial, their success rates are around you know, 25%. Well, if you look at most graduate jobs, the success rate to get those jobs is between one to five percent. So the, the most graduate jobs are far more competitive than even the most competitive universities. And, and everyone makes five applications to universities. Uh, so it's not actually surprising that people should have to make you know, 20, 30 applications in order to secure a graduate job. But I think because people don't understand how that system works and the competitiveness, it can be massively dispiriting because... And when you apply to university, you ex at least expect to get a couple of offers, right? Whilst applying to graduate jobs, actually the norm is to be rejected from the vast majority of those, those roles. And on why have we ended up with a system where work experience is so important? Well, I think that's because employers have actually lost faith in the academic system as a good judge of, of merit. And I think that's happened for two reasons. I think one, employers can see how the academic system creates massive disparities. Mm. Uh, look at the gap in attainment in GCSE and A-level grades between state and private schools. It's huge. Or even between London and you know, Yorkshire and North East, the gap is massive. So if you recruit on academics and education alone, you're going to skew towards certain groups of society and employees have decided they don't want to do that. I mean, the second reason is I, I think they've lost faith in academics being a good judge of talent. And there's been so much great inflation over the past 10 years, not only at GCSE and A-level, but in degrees as well. And the first class degree today isn't what it was 10 years ago. And, and that's just true if you look at the data of how many people get first class degrees at university. 
And when you take a step back, it's a pretty crazy system when you think about it. That when you're doing your GCSEs, there's kind of like seven or eight grades you can get. But university, there's only really three types of grade people get. Yeah. A first, a two, one, and a two, two. Yeah. And like you're putting people into three different categories. It doesn't allow many employers to sort of differentiate in terms of how hard you work to university. Like if we're being honest, if you look at that two, one category, people achieve two ones in their degrees. There's people there who absolutely work their bollocks off yeah. every single day at university and just missed out due to having a bad day on an exam. And there's people who just coasted throughout their entire time there. Yeah. And um, so the, the academic system doesn't allow employers to differentiate. So I think that's why they've all defaulted to a system where they have these internship and work experience schemes because they're using those as their new arbiters of, of talent. And that creates a really bad experience for students because now students, whilst they're at university, having to apply to 20, 30 roles, having to spend their summers doing internship and work experience rather than having a good time with their mates. So it is a really, really difficult system for young people. And unfortunately, I think the only way to succeed in the system is to kind of work out the cheat codes. Yeah. And, and that is, you know, find a way to you know, compile all the information that you're using for applications and reuse it. They're like you know, utilizing you know, ChatGPT, for instance, which can be a great tool if you've got a huge bank of information about yourself, questions you've answered different employers. It can be much easier to uh, you know, go through different application systems without having to start from scratch every single time. Like, those are the things students should be thinking about almost from day one of university, They're building up that data bank of information about themselves, application questions, and finding a way to reuse that across you know, 30, 40 different employer applications without having to start from scratch every single time yeah as someone who's just been been through uni what i think was the biggest problem in terms of achieving what you want to achieve both in your degree and, and getting the work experience you want is it's that loss of accountability you know from from school having your teachers and your parents being like do this do that and then suddenly you're all on your own you know you've got an id now you can go you can go drink you can do whatever you don't have to do any work and nobody's going to tell you off for not doing it um and you know oh i want to hear, hear about your own sort of personal relationship with accountability because you know, it might be a presumption but to get to where you got to in terms of oxford and even without you know the resources like you have you often have zero gravity like you must have had to put a lot you know accountability on yourself so maybe that drive's always been there but for someone who maybe doesn't have that you know who is very talented and, and i imagine there are people that you find with zero gravity that have all this talent, but like nobody told them account whether it's their parents always working or, you know, that something wrong at home. Like, what is your advice to people on generating that accountability for themselves so they can actually like hit the ground running at university, still have a good time, but then also, you know, succeed and feel fulfilled? Yeah, I think it's very difficult because a lot of these traits like resilience, no grit, being a kind of hyper-responsible, accountable person often stem from your childhood experience. And when I reflect on my own journey, I think the reason I was so driven and had that resilience, like brutally, was probably due to a little bit of childhood trauma, which is you know, I didn't necessarily have a perfect childhood in a way. I did grow up in a, in a single-parent family, and then my mum was a huge inspiration in my life. And... Um, was incredible in terms of looking after me and my two siblings. But it, was, it wasn't an easy, an easy existence. And, and that probably did instill a lot of drive in me because I probably did have a little bit of escapism, in honesty, like wanting to 
escape some of the situations that I found myself in sometimes growing up. So that's where the drive came from. And, and I think that dark truth is actually at the core of a lot of social mobility. You know, when I sort of see the data on our zero gravity members and hear some of their stories, now, often a lot of them have experienced like some degree of childhood trauma in, in some different way. And that has been the thing that's instilled that drive within them. So I think if you are someone who's come from a, a tricky background, like you can repurpose some of the disadvantage you've experienced as a positive force, almost driving force in your own life and own it as part of your identity and the root of your success. And if you're not somebody who's experienced that, then maybe you've grown up in a very stable family, nice area of the country, you know, good, good schooling. You've just got to find that thing that makes you tick at the end of the day. And I know there's a massive debate at the moment about, you know, should you, you know, do a job that you're passionate about or should you do the thing that you're, you're good at? But I think, I think it's, um, it's too simplistic to try and divide those two things. Now, ultimately, you tend to get passionate about the things you're really good at and vice versa. And I think trying to find that thing that makes you tick is, is so important. If you are someone who's obsessed with football, for instance, I don't be a spectator on the sideline and find a way to get involved in that industry and whether it's starting your own side hustle business you know running the social media accounts of professional footballers or doing photography and i met a great entrepreneur a couple of months ago who, who's now started his own business but the way he got his kind of first taste of entrepreneurship is he just reached out to anthony joshua and said no, i want to photograph you i'll do it for free and you know, to, went to his training camp, took a load of videos and photographs, which Joshua put on his social media. And from there became almost part of an, his team and extension who followed him around the country. They're taking these videos and, and from that experience, you know, learning how to you know, do social media, build someone's personal brand. He took those lessons and, and worked into his own business. So finding a way to not just be a spectator in the things you're passionate about, but get involved, I think is a really important principle and, and naturally the things that you are good at you will get passionate about and vice versa and, and that is how I think you can you know, create that you know, responsible accountable culture within yourself if you don't necessarily have resilience and grit inherited from your childhood situation those values often stem from experiences and if you're doing something that you're good at you feel like you're succeeding your natural cognitive um, response is going to be to try and hold yourself responsible and accountable because you want to succeed. If you're in a situation where you don't care, you're not passionate, it's quite difficult to be accountable yeah. at the end of the day, and especially if you don't have people around you pushing that accountability on you. And one of the big problems I think with universities nowadays is there are not cultures of accountability. The you know, university has become, in a way, a commercial product. Um, if you don't do your essay on time or you hand it in late, often there's no repercussion to that and that doesn't naturally you know create a, a culture of accountability that you can then take with you into the workforce so often you've got to try and find that culture elsewhere outside the academic system because you're not necessarily going to get it from a university environment yeah i'm going to ask you a question that you're probably not used to given the nature of your what your business does but for me personally i i i was very privileged and i, I went to private school education and a lot of the people around me, you know, there were very few that felt like really driven about their career or finding out what they wanted to do because there's a lot of nepotism, there's a lot of like 
you know, spoon feeding in terms of your career. And I feel like for me, and you know, my dad was somebody who benefited from social mobility mass- massively, like born in Birmingham, has built his own architecture company. And, and having that balance of, of the education, the opportunity with, with him to keep me accountable was, has been very helpful for me. But I think there, there should be an onus on, on people in a more privileged position to, you know, utilize and make the most of, of what they have available. And I feel, feel like it is often waste actually. And, and, and they, they see university as a, as a chance to just go drink and, and not actually excel at anything and not try and get internships or anything. What would be your advice from your own, like, personal upbringing and your, your life and also the people you work, you work with, uh, disadvantaged kids that you would give from them to, to a more privileged person in terms of excelling in their career? Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's an interesting uh, question. I think one of the things I, I really don't like um, in the UK and the US is I, I think we've sort of fallen into a kind of cultural war around education, where if you look, look at a lot of the um, narrative in the traditional media and sometimes on social media about that gap between state and private schools, um, often it can turn into just stereotypes that are wrong. No, I, I don't really like it when people talk about you never know, 93% who went to state schools versus 7% at private schools because there's a lot of variation within those categories, right? You know, in that state school 93%, you've got people who went to Tiffin Girls School in London you know, in a very affluent area. The results are better than most private schools. And then people who went to a state comp in South Shields. So that 93% of people at state schools masks a huge amount of variation. And the same as with private schools as well. You know, you've got some really you know, incredible public schools with incredible outcomes. You know, you kind of Westminster's, St. Paul's, Eton. But a lot of private schools nowadays um, aren't that good, in all honesty. So there's a huge amount of variation in those categories. And I, I don't think it helps to have this sort of cultural war of you no know, pitting, you know, Bullingdon boys versus the underprivileged state school students because... It doesn't create a, a culture of collaboration. I don't think it's, it reflects the reality of the situation either due to that massive amount of, of variation. And um, I think we need a more sort of sophisticated analysis of things. And I think when I saw some of my best friends from universities went to, went to private school. I didn't really know anyone growing up who went to a private school because there aren't too many in West Yorkshire. But some of the people I met at Oxford have gone to be my best friends and they went to private schools. And like when I, I sort of see the way they operate, I think one of the big differentiators is I think people who are privately educated often know how to build really good professional networks because if you've inherited a good network from your parents and you've been to a school surrounded by people who've got good networks, you sort of build that network instinct of knowing how getting access to people can be really important for kind of driving your personal growth. And I think that's something that people from state schools often don't understand. They think that success has to come exactly through their own like merits or succeeding the academic system or doing a great piece of work. They don't necessarily see how building a network can be a way to accelerate all those things. So I think that's something that people at private schools do really well. I think where people at private schools probably struggle is that if, if you do come from a a good background, you've often got the tyranny of expectations. And one of the great things about growing up in West Yorkshire is I was able to, in some ways, mold my own future and ambitions because I didn't have my mum pushing any kind of version of the good on me. 
Um, whilst if you know, you, your parents you know, are both successful investment bankers and you know from a young age have been surrounded by their friends who also work in investment banking, you go and go to a school where most people's parents work in professional services, you kind of inherit not only the resources of your parents, but also their hopes and ambitions as well. And that gets pushed on you as an individual. So I think one thing that, that people who you know, do go to private schools or, or go to you know, good state schools and good areas of the country could think about more is actually you know, what is the thing that makes them tick? They're trying to move beyond the expectations, ambitions of your parents and your environment and, and work on what is it that actually makes me passionate or what gets me up in the morning. I think that's a more difficult challenge to face sometimes if you are somebody who comes from a, a good background versus someone who's, who's faced disadvantage because people from disadvantaged backgrounds can always start with a blank slate when it comes to their ambition and hopes in life. Yeah, 100%. I think that's great advice. Um, yeah, I want to learn a little bit more about how you actually built Zero Gravity because a lot of people I interview on this podcast, uh, entrepreneurs, that they they had normally have a co-founder or someone they've been doing it with. But as far as I'm aware, you're the only founder and you've been doing this all by yourself. And I wonder what the decision behind that was. Um, and also then the next step comes, you know, building your team, right? But that if you're going to do it by yourself as a founder, then you need to have a great team around you that hold you to account and, you know, build this good ethos. What was that? Yeah. What was that process of actually building Zero Gravity out like? I, I agree that from speaking to other founders, I think it's often much easier to succeed if you do have a co-founder. It, it's not just about having somebody with a complementary skill set who can do the things that you're weak at, but it's, it's actually mainly about having a partner on the emotional roller coaster of being a founder, because often the reason why most early stage businesses fail is that the founders lose motivation and hope about what they're doing. And it's far easier to lose motivation and hope on a lonely journey when you're the only person. Because at that point, the world feels like it's on your shoulders and your shoulders alone. You don't necessarily have somebody you can speak to who's going on that same journey. So actually, the main reason to have a co-founder is not about complementary skill set. It's about having that kind of emotional partner to go on a very difficult journey with. The reason I didn't have a co-founder is no, I wasn't in an environment where entrepreneurship was encouraged. Uh, there was no real culture around entrepreneurship when it came to tech startups in West Yorkshire. That was seen as a very strange thing to do. People wouldn't even really understand the phrase startup. And even when I was at Oxford University at the time, there was no culture of entrepreneurship there either. And everyone wanted to go work in professional services, law investment banking, and the very few people wanted to be entrepreneurs. So I didn't really have a co-founder uh, I could access to go on that journey with me. So I had to do it alone. And... It was difficult. There was many times early in my journey where I banged my head against the wall thinking, this is never going to work. And the only thing that got me through that is you know, I was so passionate about what I was doing. And I was also maybe naive slash delusional. And I, I thought that you know, my vision of the way things should work is fundamentally right. If I keep plucking away at this, this something will happen eventually. And that's the way it, it turned out. You know, the first six months of bootstrapping were really tough. Now, often the things that I thought were really going to propel me to the next level didn't do so. But then I ended up just getting little bits of luck that came out of nowhere. And then when we got our first sort of cohort of people who'd used the platform, who you know, got offers to these top universities and they were telling their stories online, 
you know, journalists you know, coming across those people and being like, wow, this is a great story. I've never heard of this platform before. I want to cover this. And that, and that sort of provided a springboard for me. I, I can, when I look today and, and see how we've managed to raise so much social impact investment, we've raised £4 million, that would have seemed unfathomable three or four years ago. But the reason we were able to do that, if I sort of trace it back, is that some of those early media articles we got in like the Times and BBC News they enabled me to build my network of people who eventually went on to become investors in my company. And, and that's just a kind of lesson in how you know, plugging away at things, eventually I had my lucky break. You know, some of our stories got picked up by traditional media that enabled me to build a network, which then brought the funding in to take the business to the next stage. And I could have very easily have given up for getting that to that point. And you know, there were days where I wanted to give up, but I think it was that resilience that got me through the tricky earlier stages. And that's really difficult to do in a solo founder situation. Yeah, and you, you just mentioned that investment into a company and how beneficial that was for getting to where you want to get to. You yourself invest in a lot of companies as well. Um, and I'm curious, uh, just as someone who's yet to build a portfolio of investing into companies or to any students for advice in that, how do you choose who you're investing into? Like, what are your drivers behind, like, which one? Because obviously, as a founder who's got investment, you would have taken learnings from that. And then, yeah, and how do you apply that in terms of finding who you want to invest in? Yes, I think, the um, especially in the UK, there's been an explosion in the past five years in investment into early stage tech startups. And, and part of the reason for that is everyone's seen what's happened in Silicon Valley over the past two decades with so many success stories of breakout tech companies. But also a really boring reason as well is that it's actually really tax advantageous to invest in in startup companies. There's these schemes in the UK called SEIS and the EIS where any early stage company you invest into, you're at minimum going to get a 30% tax credit back from the government when you invest in that company. So if you put in a thousand pounds into a into a startup, the government will give you £300 back straight away of that. And if that startup does you know, eventually fall and go into administration, you can write the loss off against your income um, and reduce your income tax burden. So like the maximum amount you can really lose of your own money in a, in a sort of tech startup investment is, is sort of 70% if you do it for one of these schemes. So actually, it's really tax advantageous, and that's driven lots of investors to invest in these early stage companies because they've seen the breakout success stories and there's these tax advantages. And I think it's something that for a lot of young people to, to think about as a potential opportunity, like it's always going to be much safer to invest in an index fund where you know, over a, a long-term period of time, you can rely that index funds will increase by you know, 8% per year on average, and it'll provide a good passive income uh, flow for you eventually. Whilst investing in early stage companies is risky. They might fail. They might not do well. Um, but I think the good thing about doing that is that it does give you exposure and experience of actually evaluating other people's companies. And that is a, a skill set that's actually quite useful if you want to found your own company because it gets you to think more strategically like an investor about what you're also doing. So, so the reason I invested in these other tech startups and sort of put all my sort of savings into uh, startup investment is that not only do I, I really like startups, I want to be involved in the ecosystem, I find it really fun and interesting, 
but it helps me build a skill set that makes me think more forensically about what I'm doing at Zero Gravity. I, I get to see how other people run their business, their strategies. They, I, I work out the things I don't like about other businesses, and that also tells me something about, about mine as well. So it's, it's a really good skill to, to pick up. Um, and even if it won't necessarily be as financially successful for me as just plonking that money into a index fund and leaving it alone for 20, 30 years, I think the skills that you get out of it are... Are worth are worth doing the investment for. Yeah, and I think, like you said, that the startup space is really rising at the moment, and investment into it. And yeah, I'm hesitant hesitant to say that it's because big institutions are completely failing or anything. But you know, for example, at university, I feel like there's so many problems with like you know actually awarding degrees and marketing things and. You know, the actual practices of running a university that there are a lot of things that just aren't being solved. And, and that's where I think startups can come in and, and solve those issues that need solving, but don't get the attention from those big institutions. And obviously what you're trying to solve is kind of like that. And, and you've received all this recognition from, you know, BBC and big, big, big news outlets, you know, books on 30, um, and, I was with that influence and your connections maybe with the government as well, how what would be your advice to to future governments or you know universities to actually improve like those looking into those smaller problems and, and not just uh, yeah focusing on the big things? Yeah, I think social mobility is the big existential question, not just for the UK, but for every single developed economy in the world. In the UK, it kind of feels at the moment like everything's broken. Uh, wherever you look from the train services to the way public services are run, the schools falling down, uh, inflation, economic growth, everything seems to be broken everywhere you look. And I think a big reason for that is, you know, we got complacent about the sort of success story of the UK and, and we didn't think deeply enough about how to utilize talent from across the country. So I think this is the fundamental issue for government to solve. Now, how do you make talent match opportunity and make sure that if you're an ambitious person growing up in a small town in West Yorkshire, your, your full talents can be utilised? And I, I think there needs to be a far more radical plan for action. This is not an issue that can be solved by just you know, fixing things around the edges. And we need to almost go back to first principles and think about how we can solve some of these problems. So just to give you an example, um, when it comes to the education system, we have a massive gap between state and private, north and south, in terms of what students achieve at school. And if we don't solve that gap, that gap's going to exist for another 332 years at the current, the current rate. So clearly what's being done now is not working fast enough. Like, how about if we thought more fundamentally about how do we get more young people from disadvantaged backgrounds to you know, start school a year earlier? Or, for instance, how do we make sure that the screen time that young people um, in uh, Birmingham are having on their mobile phones is being used in a productive way? You know, young people nowadays spend more time on their phones every week than they do in the classroom. If, if government's not thinking about that from a policy point of view, uh, they're not actually utilising 50% of the time young people spend. And as far as I know, I don't think there's anybody in the Department of Education who's thinking about how they can uh, 
reach people and allow them to inspire them and to bring them educational resources through their mobile phones at home. That's a massive missing piece of policy. There needs to be more thinking about that area. And, and the reason I created Zero Gravity is I, I didn't think the school system and the classroom was the, the route to create social mobility. I thought it was far easier to connect with young people where they spend most of their time and where they actually want to spend their time. If you engage someone through their mobile phone in an experience which I think is cool, you're going to get such far higher engagement than anything you could do through a classroom. Because if you do something in a school environment, it becomes uncool by definition. Yeah. Um, so, so government really needs to actually think about creating a proper digital strategy around education, not just a strategy about how you improve the school systems. If using the school system strategy alone, the rate of progress is going to be too slow to actually solve this issue. Yeah, as we come towards the end of the episode, uh, there's a question I like to ask all of my guests and found this idea of success and um, I'll be fascinated to hear yours given what it might have been when you were younger, you know, heading into Oxford and, you know, got these amazing A-levels, looking forward to the future and now, four years into running your own company, what does success mean to you? That's a big question, isn't it? it is. um, I mean, one of the things that makes me so, I think the only thing that makes me slightly uncertain or uneasy about the mission behind Zero Gravity is, I think meritocracy as an idea is fantastic from a societal point of view. You know, everyone wants to live in a country which is dynamic, where things actually work, you know, well-run public services, fantastic companies, new innovations, scientific breakthroughs. That is what meritocracy delivers you. Like the meritocratic miracle we've lived for over the past 200 years has completely transformed the lives of you know, people like us sitting here today versus our ancestors, you know, four or five generations before us. So meritocracy, I think, is incredible at societal level. But you bring it back to the individual level, I think there's a question mark about you know, does living a meritocratic life you know, make you happier? Um, as I've been through this uh, you know, journey um, they're running zero gravity and they've got all these you know, headlines of, of success and I'm so passionate about growing this company and making an impact and the thing I just want to make sure I always kind of at least track of is you know, does ultimately propelling people into socially mobile environments and make people happier like, can we find that magic formula where people can you know, go into these very intense highly competitive industries where they can succeed, not only financially, but also in terms of the impact they can have, but also fundamentally be a happy, fulfilled person. I mean, that's a really big question, and that's what people shouldn't lose track of. And, and that's why I think it's so important to do something that you're passionate about, because if I was just running an early-stage tech startup and something I wasn't passionate about, I'd have all these incredible headlines about what I've achieved, but would I actually feel good about myself? Day to day, would I feel happy and fulfilled? Probably not. But because I am doing something that is, I'm passionate about, relates to my own journey. And you now I, I see people almost every day now and get messages on LinkedIn or, or letters in the post from people who benefit from the platform who've been on journeys like me. It's very difficult not to feel fulfilled in that environment. So I think entrepreneurship can be actually a bit of a curse unless you found a business that ultimately relates to your passion and personal mission. If you don't have that, you can have the kind of tropes of, of success or not necessarily feel like a fulfilled person, which which brings that passion point 
into real clarity. It's not just about doing something you're good at. It's actually meaning that when you do somewhat make it, you come out at the end of the process feeling a happy and fulfilled person. Yeah, that's a great answer. Joe, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Right, it's been a pleasure. Cheers, mate. Awesome.